This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, this is Mind Your Business on Business Radio. Here's your host, Lauren Feldman. Welcome to Mind Your Business. I'm Lauren Feldman. I'm Chief Content Officer of a community for business owners called 21 Hats. That's coming soon. You can listen here for updates or also check our daily newsletter for entrepreneurs, The Morning Report, which you can find at getthemorningreport.com. As usual today, we're not going to tell you how to run your business. The show's about ideas and strategies and conversations, and we want to have those conversations with you. If there's something you've been struggling with, if there's something that's holding you back, especially if it involves uh, building a sales team or any aspect of sales, hiring a sales manager, give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And back with us today to discuss your questions, your challenges, are two terrific, terrific guests. In a moment, I'm going to introduce Lance Tyson, president and CEO of the Tyson Group, and we're going to talk sales. But first, Please welcome Lou Mosca, who is Chief Operating Officer of American Management Services and a regular guest on this show. Welcome back, Lou. How are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you? Very good. Very good. Life is good. I'm glad to hear that because I I have to ask you, you you sounded a a, a little bit frustrated or uh, somehow out of sorts on Twitter the other day. And I just want to ask you about this. You you, you tweeted something about you wonder how some people manage to put one foot in front of the other and something about common sense being in short supply. But you didn't explain what this was about. Care Care to share with us? That really came from me. <laughs> Who's doing your Twitter feed, Lou? No, that that was that was actually me that time. Okay. I just you know I find it um, <clears throat> frustrating sometimes. We meet so many, so many amazing business owners, and I think everyone that owns their own business, especially those that had the courage to start from nothing, are amazing. And then on the flip side, some of these amazing folks that have huge hearts just are not. Just. It's just like there's a, a, a missing gene in the common sense department sometimes. So I go must on. Have been having, I must have been having a tough moment or two <laughs> when, I, when I sent that out with, some, with trying to get some folks to rationalize some of the lunacy that they wanted to perpetuate. So it just. It Come just on, give us a hint. You don't have to name names, but <laughs> what kind of issues are we talking about here? Um, all right, so I'll give you an example. Please. This, this, I'm going to tell you, this actually, I'm going to give you a couple of examples, and they all happened in the same day. Okay, so maybe that's what got me going, right? So <laughs> we, we have this we have this client, he uh, runs a machine shop, and I, you know, he's doing about $4 million bucks. And when we got his financials, and he had almost $3 million in inventory on his books on a $4 million machine shop, we just said something doesn't smell right. And when we wound up spending some more time with them, the $3 million was really about 300000 And he admitted that what he was doing was just to make the bank happy. And we tried to talk him through how this is beyond just making the bank happy. This is really not good stuff. Um, this is... Beyond hospital. People get in Beyond big trouble for this kind of thing, right, Lou? Yeah, I don't want to use bad words, but yeah, this is this is not good, not good. So that was whatever day I sent my tweet out. I had another one that uh, is about a, a three or four million dollar flooring contractor out on on the southwest, and um, guy puts down high end floors, hasn't made money in three years. He's got no backlog of work. All right, so this is a contractor. 28 employees, no backlog at work, and he decided to go on vacation for four weeks. <laughs> and, and I'm like, and my guys are calling me, and we're Skyping, and we're FaceTiming with clients, and this is going around, and I've got others, and I'm like, it just, I, I said to my, I remember there was an old song, uh, you know, back when I was a kid, you probably weren't born yet, Steeler's Wheel, they had this song called Stuck in the Middle, and they had this phrase in the song that's a clowns to the left and jokes to the right. <laughs> oh, I remember I it. And, and and I'm like, come on, folks. 
You're smarter than this. You have 30 employees. You're smarter than this. And I'm like, sometimes the emotion outweighs the logic. And it's just, it can be very challenging sometimes. And I must have been having a Lou moment. <laughs> Were you able to help either of those owners? Um, the machine shop with the line of credit, with the inventory out of whack, um, he actually, after a day or two, actually paid attention and started to listen. Uh, the flooring fellow was impossible. It was just absolutely, positively impossible. What can I tell you? Do you have any explanation? I mean, what, what, how do you think he was looking at this? What, what, what allowed him to go away for four weeks at, at a time like that? I think, you know, I don't know exactly what was going through his mind, but I think, you know, most of these independent owners that we work with and we meet and we talk to all the time, and I've had this conversation with you before, they're extraordinarily optimistic all the time. They just have this huge optimism. And he looked at us and he said, you know, I've been through bad times before. It'll work out. It'll be okay. It'll come back. The phone will ring. And I'm like, okie dokie. No problem. <laughs> So, well, yeah, it just it just happens. Yep. Let's hope he's right. So here's yep. another happy topic. Uh, lately, I've, I've been following your uh, postings at Forbes.com, and you've been writing a series on how to recession-proof your business. Do you see a recession coming? Um, I see. I, I mean, I don't think we're going to have anything close to 2008, 9, and 10. 2008 9 in particular, I don't think General Motors is going to fall apart. Um, but I, I think that by the end of 2020, um, maybe into 21, maybe into the middle of the end of 20, I think things are going to change. And I'll, and I'll tell you why I think it. I have, uh, you know, we deal with a lot of business owners all the time. Uh, I see a slowdown in construction. Now, not necessarily the work that's going on right now, but a slowdown in letting of new work coming. And that's not across the board, but I just told you about a flooring contractor with literally no work. 28 employees, literally no work. Um, I have a friend who is a, uh, runs a construction company here in Orlando. They do about 80 or $90 million, and they always have like a three-month pipeline. Well, it's down to two and a half months. Doesn't sound like a big difference, but it is. You know, so I think that there's change of foot, and I just always have this fundamental belief. I want to be 1,000% wrong, but I want to be 2,000% prepared. I'm talking to Lou Mosca. He is Chief Operating Officer of American Management Services, a consulting firm that works with businesses that are struggling and businesses uh, that are thriving and want to do even better. Um, if you have a question for Lou, please give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. Tell us about your uh, ideas, Lou, for recession-proofing your uh, company, you know, for whenever that recession does actually come. What, what should someone be thinking about now? I think that, um, you know, I just, I'm a blocking and tackling kind of guy, Lauren, so I just believe that it's October in a couple of days. And, and it's the right time to start working on whatever plans you want to put in place for 2020. But I think as part of that, I've always believed that there are several steps you should take. And whether you want to call it recession-proof your business or lock down your business or protect your business from, you know, bad times, vultures, whatever you want to call it, I think there are some fundamentals. And my first one is always, 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 always managed by the numbers. Too many folks I see are just worried about sales need to fill the pipeline, need sales, need to fill the pipeline, need sales. And I think everybody needs to fill the pipeline and need sales. But I think you need to manage by the numbers. You need to be intimate with what's going on in your business. What, what, what does that mean? I mean, isn't that obvious? Doesn't everybody manage by the numbers? No, I think most people manage by the checkbook. I think, um, you know, when you're talking about independent one, two, three, four, five, six million dollar business owners and that's mostly what we deal with, you know, $1 million up to 20 or $30 million in annual revenue. I think most of them manage by the checkbook. And if they have money in their checkbook and they can pay their bills this week or next week, they're, they're breathing. And I think that managing by the numbers is different. I believe, that, I believe that I don't care what size your business is, you should get financials 
on a timely basis, and you should go over them number by number, digit by digit, comma by comma. If, if, if somebody week, listening month. to this is thinking, oh, that, that's me, um, I, I need to take these steps, what, what, what's the first step toward getting financials? Does that mean you have to hire a CFO? Uh, can your accountant or bookkeeper do that for you? What, what's the first step? I think that I'm not, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of good software programs out there. But a lot of people seem to work with QuickBooks. And as long as you're entering your information in QuickBooks, you can print out a financial statement anytime you want. Will it be a thousand percent accurate like your CPA did it? Probably not. Will it be 98% accurate and close enough? Probably so. I'll take it a step further. The heck with software. Just work off cash. Cash in, cash out, cash in, cash out every week. You know how you're doing. And I'm just saying that people should micromanage by the numbers. And what I mean by that is there is nothing you shouldn't know about what's going on in your business. You, you talk about um, every company having its own unique metrics or key performance indicators that, you know, gives the owner of that company or can give that owner the owner of that company, if he or she is paying attention, a heads up on uh, where the business is going. Can you talk a little bit about how do you figure out what your uh, key performance indicator is if you want to? I assume this is part of managing by the numbers. How do you figure out what your unique uh, metric is? Yeah, I think that um, I think if you're a million dollar company, you need to conduct yourself and hold yourself and your staff accountable as if you want to be a five million dollar company. And I think every industry has their own measurements, their own key performance indicators, their own, you know, buzzwords or, or, or items that are their hot buttons. So I'll give you an example. In the manufacturing environment, you know, you should want to know your equipment utilization. You should want to know your percentage of scrap. You should want to know your inventory terms. In a construction environment, you should want to have some as close to real-time project management as possible. So if you estimated a job to be 100 hours, you don't want to get 80 hours in or 80% and only be 50% done with the job. So there should be some real-time accountability there. Change orders are an issue. How do you control your labor in a construction environment? Restaurants, you know, what's your average ticket? What's your pricing? What does your menu look like? Um, how many turns are you getting at a table? How many times you turn in that table? So there are certain key indicators that each industry has that's unique to them. And I think an owner doesn't need to get a daily or a weekly financial statement, but if you've got a solid grasp of your key indicators every day or every week, then you'll know what your monthly financials are going to look like. So why wait to do that? So I don't care if you're doing a half a million or 10 million. I think you should have rock-solid accountability, or you're just winging it. And if you as the owner are just winging it, what do you think your people are doing? Alan Greenspan uh, used to say that <laughs> he, <laughs> you're laughing, maybe you know where I'm going. He used to say that he knew a recession was coming, or you could tell a recession was coming by watching the sale of men's underwear, because <laughs> when times get tough, men stop replacing their uh, worn-out underwear, and if those sales fall, uh, trouble follows. What, what, what's your KPI, Lou? <laughs> You're going to kill me. I'm going to kill you, maybe. I don't know. So my, 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 believe it or not, my KPI is, is I sort of look at two things. Uh, I look at uh, car dealerships, and are they pushing back on taking vehicles onto their lot? And I look at uh, truckers, right? Because when truckers are not as um, bearish or bullish as they were before, then they normally know slowdown is coming before most people do. You know, I read mixed reports on the trucking industry now, so I still see we have some trucking clients that still can't find drivers and have enough work to choke a horse, and we have others that have a glut of vehicles, a glut of equipment, a glut of people, and just can't fill in their days. They just see business slowing down for them. So, you know, that's sort of what I look at. I used to look at housing. I don't know what's a fair barometer on housing anymore. Interesting. 
All right. Well, you you brought up slowing sales. Let's uh, let's talk about sales. Let's uh, let's introduce our second guest and our friend Lance Tyson, who is CEO of the Tyson Group, which coaches and trains sales leaders. He's also author of Selling Is an Away Game. Welcome back to Mind Your Business, Lance. Thanks, thanks, guys. Glad to be back on. I'm excited. Great to have you here. Uh, why don't you tell us what, what what do you mean by selling is an away game? Just to start. You know, interesting enough, I was with um, the other day. I was with some bankers. I was in uh, Phoenix, and it was my brother actually runs runs the team. And somebody asked me the same question, and I said, "Well, selling is an away game now because it really, whether it's retail, whether it's B two B, the sale really happens in the buyer's mind. I mean, we've never been in a spot." in our history that a buyer could be as armed with as much information about our own product or service or industry as we are. So, you know, hit rewind 10, 20 years ago, a business or a salesperson was really the person who held the, their cards with, with a with an industry. But now somebody can do some quick research. So you got to really connect with where they are um, and what they already know, good, bad, or ugly. So that's, that's why we called the book that. I see. Um, so at the top of the show, uh, Lance, I was talking to Lou about his frustration with some of the the business owners he works with. Um, I'm curious from you, there, there must be some things you see out there that drive you a little bit crazy when you're working uh, with smaller businesses and trying to help them with their sales approach. What, what kind of what are the most frequent mistakes uh, you see? Well, you know, I got asked a question. Um, I got asked a question by a small business owner recently. I was sitting down with. He was actually talking about um, being on his board, and we were sitting having a cup of coffee. And I, um, he, he he was really frustrated that with culture, especially especially here, you know, you get people in their forties. They get really frustrated with Gen Z, and they get frustrated with millennials, and. You know, they want so much, but then I, I'm always saying, hey, don't you think the previous generation felt the same way about us? Well, no, they're different. I said, I guess we're suffering from uniqueness, right? And and then the question, <laughs> the disease of uniqueness, right? And uh, I said, I said, look, um, bottom line is, if you're asking, should we meld our culture to the incoming talent or should they mold to us? I said, I said, if you if you mold it to them, you're forgetting Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And a lot of times, even with salespeople, um, a lot of business owners I know, small business, even large businesses, really think that salespeople, you know, they, they think they're born, not built. I believe the opposite. Um, we're in the business of building salespeople. So we really don't we really don't want to be held hostage to this thought of culture, what we think we need to be. It's we really form that. We really film, form that temperature. I was with, this week I was with the Phoenix Suns, and I was talking to some of their younger sales leaders, and and they go, we have to have a their sales team, right? And they said we have to have a really good team. I said, what kind of team do you want? And they said, well, it's kind of like a basketball team. We're going to be competitive. I was like, not in sales. I think you want a wrestling team or a golf team. You want them worried about their own weight class. So it's like they're the struggles that I seem to I seem to run into constantly and it's it's a forever conversation so so you're saying you kind of object to the idea that a company should adjust its culture for the the younger employees coming in but i i have to push back a little bit and tell you sure. I, I see i see a lot of owners who complain about that younger generation i think they're, they're kind of giving them a uh, a bad rap that you know the idea that they're yeah. all uh they all have this sense of entitlement uh you know i i admire a, a, a lot of this uh you know the, the millennial generation that's come along and is questioning things in a way that i'm kind of embarrassed my generation didn't lou i'm curious where uh, where do you fall in this discussion um i think <laughs> come on lou oh boy, oh boy. <laughs> Lance, how are you today, by the way? <laughs> Lou, hit it, hit it, buddy. Hit <laughs> it, okay. So, so here we go. I think that um, I think that sales is a discipline. I think that I agree with Lance. It's very rare, very rare that someone is born a natural salesman. I think that whole natural-born salesman is a little bit of baloney. 
So I think those people that fall into the natural-born salesman category are a little bit, um, uh, they've got a little bit of luck on their shoulders. I think sales is a discipline. I think sales should be uh, a process that someone is taught, taught, nurtured, uh, mandated, that's just got to have a discipline. I think the best salespeople I've ever met, sales professionals I've ever met, are relentless at their craft. They're relentless at wanting to get better. They're relentless at going after the next prize. They want to be on top of the leaderboard. Wanting to be on top of the leaderboard, I believe, is something you don't teach. You're either built with that or you're not built with that. But the the cat the the discipline, the craft, the procedure, the system of being a, a qualified and, a, and an extraordinary sales professional takes so much work. It makes being a purchasing agent, it makes being a buyer, it makes being a controller a cakewalk. And I think people, for whatever reason, uh, owners think that their salespeople should just be able to turn it on and off. Um, I love the best when they stick Junior into a sales role and expect that Junior's going to execute. And I do think there's a little bit of entitlement on much younger generations than myself. Now, on the flip side, Lauren, I think these kids are wicked smart, just absolutely wicked smart. That doesn't mean they have a wicked smart work ethic all the time. And the ones I want are guys that want to learn and want to grow so bad it hurts them. It pains them. They have a relentless mentality for extraordinary, and and that's what I look for. But I agree with Lance. You've got to teach. Well, let's go back to that, Lance. Tell us a little bit more. I think it's kind of counterintuitive. I think most business owners um, do not believe what you just said, which is that you— uh, you can te- you can build a salesperson um, that they're born. Um, I, I think m- most owners that I've talked to think th- that's a particular kind of personality. It e- you either have it or you don't, and and you cannot teach it. Wh- why do you feel differently? Well, I, I want to address I want to address one other thing you both said before you before sure. you do that. So so I, I want to be crystal clear about this whole millennial Gen Zer. Um, if, if you, yes, they come in with very stronger opinions because you've got to remember every millennial or Gen Zer was the chief information officer, chief technology officer in the house from the time they were four years old. How do you turn the Wi-Fi on? How do you connect this? So they've had a seat at the table since they were a child, right? And and I would tell you companies for the last thirty years that I've dealt with that have good cultures always ask their people their opinions, right? So that's fine. They just need your culture and your company. It doesn't mean you get a vote every time, though. So it's not really a democracy. Most companies that we all deal with here are actually uh, controlled organizations. They're more they're hierarchical. That's that's how companies are run, command and control. Um, Well, not all companies. And, you know, I think that that's an area where I would say, you know, companies should be thinking about changing a little bit. You know, I think the the generation you're talking about is more inclined to say, you've just told me to do X. Uh, Please explain to me why you want me to do X. In in the old days, people just did it. Good manager, good leader would do that anyway. People need to know what it is, how it works, why it's important and who says so besides you. True. Good leaders have always done that. I'm just saying, like, yeah, you owe people that explanation. I have a pretty flat organization. My salespeople know what their KPIs are. They get what their KPIs are. And we've had self-directed work teams for a while. I just don't think millennials are – I just don't think they're that different than any other generation. I I really don't. Um, I play Fortnite with my son's hockey team at Hobart, (laughs) okay? And if you had listened to Good Morning America, they'd tell you that millennials aren't very competitive. Well, I, I play I play video games with them. They don't sound any less competitive than I've ever heard before. They talk smack. They make fun of each other. I just I just don't see it. I think what we're forgetting is from a leadership standpoint on the sales side and the other side, and I'll answer your other question, that we're so worried as leaders of making everybody feel belong, belong belonging to the organization, which is Maslow's middle – 
hierarchy. And if you go back to what Lou said, some of the better salespeople, some of the better business people, they go through survival, they go through security, then belonging, and then self-actualization. And I think a lot of these cultures are really being true to one thing in the word culture. They're, they're cults. That's the first four letters of culture is cult. And they, 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 I think you can play to people's competitiveness in all kinds of different ways. I'll give you a, for instance, I said, I said the other day to this business owner that he can't get the salesperson to, to act a certain way. And they're like not filling information out and things like that. I said, well, I started to look at his compensation. I said, well, everything, you're pissed off at the salesperson that they're not complying with information that you need in your CRM. I said, but all you're doing is incentivizing me. It's the carrot, the carrot, and the carrot. He goes, and, it's, and this, this guy owns a $20 million company. They're, he's a big rental company, a company that's a big, big, big rental firm, like construction rentals. And I said, he goes, what do you mean, Lance? I go, well, why don't you say to the gal, like, look, if all this information is, in, is not in CRM, as the lead comes in, you, you potentially forego any kind of commissions or compensation on that because you didn't actually do your whole job. I said, that's the stick. People support a process that they feel helps them succeed. I was on a flight from Minneapolis last week to, to out to L.A., and I spent $17 on Wi-Fi, and uh, the Wi-Fi didn't work on the Delta flight. I spent the whole next day trying to get my $17 back. You'll do more to, not to lose something than you will to gain something. So you have to have a good <laughs> counterbalance. I think what's happening now, it's, it's carrot, carrot, carrot. There's no stick. And you don't have to be an ugly human being for there to be implications. And that's what I mean about command and control. And a lot of our comparisons are against these companies that produce obscene profits, like some of these dot-coms. I own a small company. We do not have obscene pro uh, profits. So we have to have some command and control or we'll go out of business. That's all I'm saying. So all right. I, I don't believe all the hype about the millennials. But back to the well, but sales. Before you answer my question about uh, whether salespeople are uh, born or built, let me just remind everyone: uh, my guests are Lou Mosca of the American Management of American Management Services and Lance Tyson of the Tyson Group. If you've got a question, especially about uh, an issue you're struggling with uh, involving sales, uh, give us a call. We've got two pros here ready to take your questions and kick around your challenges. We're at one eight four four Wharton. That's eight four four nine four two. Seven eight six six. Okay, Lance. Why, why why do you think salespeople can be built? Well, it, it's because it's it's um, there's so many different aspects of sales. You don't have to like I could be a good I could be a good boxer and and like a Larry Holmes and ultimately his bread and butter was was a jab. I mean, he won world titles because he could jab. He had other punches he was not good at. Right, and Mike Tyson was not a good jabber. So I can. There are certain things that a salesperson might have not have the capacity to do that you could teach or make the process easier. So what happens with a lot of entrepreneurs? They get somebody in there that just crushes the number, like the guy I was talking about recently, and now she she's she's making a ton of money. He's very frustrated with her. She's not willing to do X, Y, and Z. I said, well, you don't have her looking over her shoulder. He goes, what do you mean? I said, well, put a couple young reps in the area. You're profitable enough. You could absolutely afford. Cut her territory down or lower the fence. She, she is at a point where she, she's making enough money, but your business requires her to do more. But she's very satisfied. She's comfortable at this point. At some level, you got to create this. You can't threaten her, right? You can reduce her territory a little bit. You can put more competition in the territory. Your job as a sales leader to get performance is not that what's, – what's happened with all this data and analytics, we, we tend to be thermometers, but the real job is to be a thermostat to control the temperature. And, and so there's all kinds of things you can get to get salespeople good at. Like, for instance, we hire a young salesperson. We believe in a money ball concept. We hire young students right out of college. Well, for their first year, all they're allowed to do is just set appointments for us. So we teach them how to set appointments and have quick, brief, and prompt two conversations. Then we teach them the questioning process. And look, we lose two out of three, right? Because yeah, they, they get, get bored setting appointments? What's that? Do you lose them because they get bored setting appointments for a year? Well, no, because we have them do other things. We get them involved in other projects. They sit on other calls. They put proposals together. We ask them their opinion. And then some of them get good and leave. But we, we know if we hire three, we're going to keep one. 
And I, ha- I have at least four people on staff that have been with me for 10-plus years, one five-plus years because of that process. Do we get all our people that way? No. But we have to teach them over time how to, how to incrementally teach them how to be good salespeople because there's so many things you have to be good at now. So I don't think they're born. But what happens with entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs like the one I'm talking about, he is so enthralled that she is just great. He thinks he has to go find one like her. And I'm like, no, you got to go. You got to start building some. You have no money ball concept. You're not. You're not looking for young raw talent to develop. Lou, that's uh, the, the situation that Lance describes is something I've heard all the time. I and mean, people, I hear owners complaining that you, you have to hire, uh, to get a really good salesperson, you have to hire a, a, a certain personality type, and that type is, is not a team player, and it's very hard to get them to work within the, the confines of the, you know, the culture of the organization. Is, is that something you see? I'll tell you a couple of things. That number one, I've, we have hired, I have hired, uh, Many folks over the years that I watch them go through training, and I'm like, no way, never going to make it. Got other guys I've watched go through training, and I'm like, this guy's going to be a rock star. And I'm almost always incorrect because I can't open up their heart and their soul and see what's in their (laughs) soul. So I look at it like this. I actually don't care what canvas they come with. If they show an enthusiasm, a desire, um, I had a young fellow work for us, and he only lasted about six months. Uh, his choice, not ours. Worked for us in uh, Buffalo. He was really young, about 24, 25. And he had a three-month shout-out of that six months where he was just knocking it out of the park, just knocking it out of the park. And then he decided, you know, he didn't want a quote-unquote full-time position. But I do believe in accountability. I do believe in a carrot and a stick. I believe that it's our responsibility to provide them, provide all of our folks, everyone we put in a sales position, the right opportunity. It's that's our job to do. An opportunity to me includes training, mentoring, coaching, kicking in the fanny, hugging, whatever it means, whatever it requires, because it is unique for each person. I don't believe it can be one size fits all if you want to build a sales team of 10, 20, or 30 people. But ultimately, their job is to do one thing, and that's to close or sell or whatever you want to call it. So, and, I, and I, I, I worry sometimes that people get afraid of the my job is to sell concept because it almost sounds like it's offensive. I'm a sales guy. It's not. It's, it's go to the bank and do the right thing. So that's what I believe. We, we should provide an opportunity. We should provide a healthy environment. We should provide all the training we can, and their job is to do their job. And, and I will never waver on that. So, Lou, a salesperson comes back in and says, no, I, I haven't been selling anything, but the problem is your, your price is too high. What do you do? Fire him. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Lance? You know, <laughs> I'm with Lou. I'm definitely with Lou. <laughs> really? I, listen, let me tell you what I think. I think that... <clears throat> I'm going to tell you from my perspective, I'll talk about American management. There are very few firms out there that do what we do that charge more than we charge. Okay, so we are by design probably as expensive as anyone you're going to deal with, maybe more. And I'm not shy about it. I don't care about it. And if you have a problem with that, you're in the wrong environment. And I don't mean that flippantly, and I don't mean it to offend anyone, but the minute you come in and you work with us and you train with us, you know what you're up against. And the last thing I'm ever going to do is sell on price. And I know price matters. I get it. But I'm not going to go down that path and make that an excuse. Lance? So, so, so I think that – and, and... – Actually, ironically enough, I, I think I got to spend more time with Lou because we are definitely 3x more than our customers or our, our competitors. <laughs> so for us, it, it's it's price price is price. But let, let's look at a. There's a couple ways to look at this. One is objections. Is the price too high, or is the salesperson struggling with objections? And then the other thing is how much, especially in the B2B play, how much a salesperson can actually negotiate. Like for instance, our salespeople internally. They have a floor, and the ceiling's as high as they want to make, and so they can't go below this, below a certain number. Because, and but we allow them to negotiate within that themselves. 
So that that's the other thing. But in, there's marketplace-driven objections that cause salespeople to think it's a price issue. And when you get objections, the marketplace-driven objections are cost, budget, price, and value. And none of those were – the marketplace uses those words interchangeably, but the salesperson hears price. Budget's different. Budget's a past number predict future, but it's also a timeline. It's also people, how they make decisions. Cost is an implication of having something. Value is always perceived, and price is what the market will bear. So we got to decide what is the salesperson really dealing with. And then on the other side, from a sales management standpoint, it's metrics that matter. So, for instance, in a lot of businesses we deal with, you know, when you're looking at you're doing pipeline management, for instance, there's a couple gravity plays to address why you wouldn't sell. You know, three, 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 33 and a third of the people that you try to sell to will buy from you in the near future. 33 and a third will buy in the far future, and 33 and a third will never buy from you even if you try to sell them a dollar for 90 cents. So, you know, what's the problem? Is it a pipeline issue is why they're not selling? They don't have enough in their pipeline to drop anything down. Is it a pitch-through rate? Like, are they unable to get to a second meeting and they give too much information up in a first? So you decide as a price, and we deal with this all the time. A lot of times we find, yeah, it could be pricing, but it also could be other things the salesperson's not doing to address it. Give me an example. Um. A, a situation it's, where it could be pricing, but there are other things you can still do. Well, it's. it's um, I'll give you a great example. Um, last two, we're we're um, last two weeks we were at the Jacksonville Jaguars and the, and the Phoenix Suns, and as we were breaking down the sales process of the salespeople, they'd get on a sales call with a um, with a potential buyer. They would verbalize the solution, say it was a very large hospitality package, and um, the buyer would say, "Yeah, hey, I'm really interested in that." And then all of a sudden, um, the, the salesperson would just send the information over in an email that pretty much looked like a Hertz rental agreement, right? And then they can't get a call back. And then the only thing they can think of is it was priced too high. But now the problem is you, you don't even know that because you, you didn't present anything. Sending is not selling, right? So they don't have control, like Lou said earlier, and what he said was profound, a disciplined sales process. What they do is they jump the gun. They're just because because buyers right now are asking you just send all the information because they have access to stuff. And so when a salesperson just stay in their lane because the science of sales is the process. If they don't have a disciplined sales process, they're not actually being able to pitch because that's their job. Their job is to sell, like Lou said, or to close. But if, if they're jumping the sales process, they think it's priced, they get a little bit of feedback, and it's really not that. It's actually their sales process is the issue. I'm not saying every time. I'm not saying – I'm not discounting price, but sometimes it's because of something else, right? Lou, you would agree in your business, your salespeople, anytime they struggle with prices because they probably tried to cheat the sales process a little too, and the people didn't see the value who they're trying to sell to. I think every time one of my professionals – uh, short circuits or quote unquote cheats the sales process. Our client, our potential client loses. We always lose. It never, yep. ever works. And I don't shy away from anything that we have to deal with. I don't shy away from our price. I don't shy away from the fact that, you know, I've had employees write smack about us on the internet. I, I just don't shy away from any of it. It has nothing to do with the value the deliverables, the ROI, the improvement, the life-changing things we can accomplish for an owner. And if we're talking about anything other than that kind of stuff, we're all destined to fail. So the way I look at it is our clients, you know, they get emotional about something, and then ultimately they'll make a decision based on some degree of logic or hopefully common sense or, or something where they connect the dots. If they're not doing that, I never blame a prospect or a potential client. That's us. Always us, and it's back to the discipline again. Lou, I I hear what you're saying, especially as it applies to to your consulting business Mm -hmm. uh, and and the prices you charge for that. But do you look at it differently when you're talking to a client 
that uh, has more direct competition. Um, you know, not necessarily a, a you know a commodity business, but something where uh, it's easier for someone to go out and find someone else who does precisely or, or almost the same thing. I'll give you an example, and I think you and I may have spoken about this once before. I have a very, very dear friend who is the vice president of sales of a. million construction company here in Orlando, and they cover the state of Florida, Georgia, Carolinas, up into Virginia. And he's got about 24 or 25 sales reps, and he wants to pull his hair out sometimes. The difference between how the top people conduct themselves and perform versus how the middle and the bottom people conduct themselves and perform. And it is an extraordinarily competitive business where their average ticket doing $90 million a year is under $2,000. It's a lot of tickets. It's a lot of small activity. And he tells me all the time that they lose work because some of his people just get complacent and he can't find enough people to replace some of the mediocre ones. I hate mediocrity, Lawrence. Just, What's he referring to when he says they just get complacent? What What is it that they're not they, doing? They, he gives them a little salary, gets them like $40,000 a year, and then they get a commission where they can earn up to about a hundred grand, and they go month by month by month. So if they had a good month and there's four or five days left in the month, it's sort of like they coast a little bit. Interesting. Lance, and what's the answer to that, Lance? He's chasing them. Well, I, I, it's, it's, you know, I think, I think what Lou said is, and what's interesting about that, it's minimum standards. Like, I can't. I struggle with sales leaders all the time where like, you know, you go in and, and this is activity. You can coach on three things, get results in three things, behaviors, activities, or outcomes. Right. But there's minimum standards to everything. So what I always find out is like I go in and somebody like say a sales manager, sales leader, or business owner is struggling. I can't get them to make the number of phone calls they're supposed to make. I'm like, well, well, what do you mean you're struggling with that? Well, they won't make as that many phone calls. Well, at some level, you have to have implications. This minimum activity, you get to keep your job, right? It's like <laughs> being there on time. Like this is this this is not a. Or I had a, I had a sales leader the other day who was struggling getting stuff in CRM. Like I mentioned before, it's like, hey, you're not going to get paid if you don't do this, right? So you gotta you gotta have a stick. So it's not a one word answer. It's it's kind of what we let them lag on, and. You know, my brother, one of my brothers sells for a big bank on the East Coast, and he got a bunch of territory, and he goes, uh, and he had never worked for a bank like that before. He's selling financing to, like, uh, franchises. And he said, um, what should I expect? And I said, well, what you should expect is if you start doing really well in the three states you're in, within six months, they'll make your territory smaller. So you better do well in all your territories because that's the implication. The bank will start seeing that you can get better results, right? And they might do it if you don't sell well either. So there always has to be that implication out there, that consequence for not doing something. Otherwise, you're just trying to shame people into activity, and that never works. You're listening to Mind Your Business. I'm sorry, Lauren. That's okay. Go ahead, Lou. One of my uh, one of my daughters works for a large financial institution, West Coast based, multi 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 billion dollar institution, and they just let go a bunch of sales folks. And the sales folks they let go, and I'm not going to say across the board, where a lot of them were making their numbers, not doing their requirements. So they had requirements on paperwork, requirements on their CRM, requirements on on new leads, new doors, new opportunities, new contacts, and they weren't doing it. Those are the people that got let go first. So this has got to be a professional environment with responsibilities. You're listening to Mind Your Business on Sirius XM 132. I'm Lauren Feldman. My guests are a couple of pros, Lou Mosca and Lance Tyson. If you've got a question about sales, this is your last chance. Give us a call. We're at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Lance, I'm curious, what what impact do you see uh, social media and digital marketing having on on the sales process? Has it changed it substantially? Yeah, um, it it has. It's changed it from a prospecting standpoint, um, from an access standpoint. I think, like, for instance, I think LinkedIn's become more like an electronic Rolodex. I had a couple – somebody hit me up recently and say, hey, see, so you're connected with so-and-so. Can you introduce me? I'm like, 
I'm connected with them. I don't know who they are. <laughs> right? so, um, I know that. I, uh, I know that feeling. Right. So I, I but I but I, I think the Im, the biggest impact is how we communicate, like how we use social media. And, you know, my my thing is, as long as it's not illegal and moral and ethical, everything has to be on the table. Right. So, you know, do you communicate through LinkedIn? Like we're, we, we're just we, we help design some individual sales marketing campaigns, what a salesperson would do to kind of prospect. And like right now we're recommending probably in the last three months more so and all don't lead with LinkedIn because it's, it's, it's so such a shallow red ocean there. What, what do you mean by um, don't lead with LinkedIn? Don't I mean, don't make I that mean, your would, first outreach. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's exactly right. I wouldn't make that my first outreach because everybody's making their, that their first outreach now. Um, so what do you, you know, do? We're, well, we're actually recommending some companies, and they're having success with it. We even had two. Is just is is actually especially with larger products where you have to get into, or more high end products where you have to get in or services. Maybe use the mail first. Because nobody's using it anymore. I, I know. I know. If you're sitting there going, "Oh, what's who's this old guy on here saying using the mail?" I'm saying, all I'm saying is this is not crowded, right? It's it's not nobody's doing it right now, right? Um, you know, I, I know some I, people who who swear by handwritten thank you notes, and for exactly yeah. the reason you're talking about it, it's, people are so surprised when they get them now, and it, it means something, and they remember it. Well, every, I still every, do that. Yeah, and so do I. Like we're. Uh, we're using the book that we wrote right now as kind of an entry point, right? And we're gifting it off at Amazon with a note. And and it's just like little things like that where you send an article, a handwritten note, but but what everybody on the phone from a business development standpoint, if you're using it for business development, you gotta keep you gotta keep thinking this. It takes six to nine touches to actually contact somebody. And that and this this is when all the stats are coming out from Salesforce or InsideSales.com. And but then it takes about six to nine contacts to actually get time off somebody's calendar, and they're blended touches. So you leave a voicemail, even if some people say don't, because it actually gets transcribed into a voicemail, or you can read it, right? So if you dial and you don't leave a voicemail, it's really not a touch. Um, you send a snail mail, you use LinkedIn, you use email, but you're probably going to have to double down on a couple of them. So. So it's an all-in approach. There's no reason not to inbox people on Twitter if you're connected, right? Instagram's starting to – people are starting to message people on Instagram now, believe it or not. A lot of – like I watched it happen yesterday in Phoenix. A couple hit-ups on, on Instagram, and you would think that's really not a business tool. Well, it's not illegal or more unethical, so have at it. Well, but there's a line somewhere where this crosses over into, um, <laughs> you know – the potential for it. it may not be illegal or immoral, but you, you can offend people if you come at them from too many directions, I think, uh, at a no, certain point. There's no doubt. There's no doubt. And some people can pull that off and some people can't. Um, so I think until we used to, um, I used to work in, outside of Philadelphia and I worked for Dale Carnegie training at one time in my territories like Horsham and Hatboro. And I used to have this little business card that had a, um, it had this king coming out of a tent with a sword, and on the side of the tent was this little guy. It was like a salesman, and it had like a rotator machine gun, and the king was going out to lead his troops. And he says to his assistant, I have no time to see some crazy salesperson. All his, all his uh, soldiers had spears. I, I remember I dropped that off at uh, uh, Chrysler Financial one time, and I was this is 25 years ago. And the guy called me up. He goes, you're from Dale Carnegie. I've never been so offended in my life, blah, blah, blah. I ended up, I ended up being my biggest account. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so what's the moral? What's the message of that story? Turn a lemon into lemonade. <laughs> <laughs> well, hearing you talk about, you know, going back to some of the old techniques, you know, including – um, handwritten notes. What's the current status of cold calling? Do you does that? Do people still do it? Do you still recommend it? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, I, I'm ready to post something on LinkedIn today. Um, I was with the Phoenix Sun yesterday, and we sat in a room all day and cold called. And believe it or not, like I think we made 35 calls and we talked to 19 people. And they were cold calls. I, I was wow. actually surprised, and we think it was happening because they they hadn't been calling as much as they've been doing a lot of social stuff to these people, and they were kind of 
not totally cold leads, but 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 it's right now all evidence says it's going to take somebody about 85 to 112 dials to actually, if you're trying to win an appointment, get through. It's harder. It's still being done, though. Lou, so, do, you, do you recommend it? Cold calling? Um, so, you know, we, we have... Calling. Oh, sorry. Yep. We have, a, we have a call center here in Orlando. I'm going to tell you uh, two-thirds of the dials are cold calls. It is about 100 to 120 dials to make a contact, to make a set an appointment. Uh, and I require my outside sales folks to cold call also. Um, but just really to gather information to feedback to the call center. I don't think people are too open to folks knocking on the door to try to sell them anything. Um, yeah. And, I, and I'm totally in agreement with Lance. If it's not unethical, immoral, or illegal, it's on the table. And people have the opportunity to say, don't communicate with me through that medium, and we won't do it. We just won't do it. But Laura and I have mailed out our New York Times bestseller on the blind to a 1,000 business owners, had four of them contact me to become consultant clients. I've done postcard mailers. And I know a lot of mail is not open by the owner nowadays, but some of it is. I've done postcard mailers because they're a heck of a lot less money than regular mail. I've done regular mail. I've done uh, LinkedIn, which I do not like. I have to tell you, I'm not a fan of it. Because? Uh, from, a marketing, from a marketing perspective, I just didn't care for it. I thought the results were not good for us, and it's supposed to be a lot of business people communicating and networking. It just didn't work for us. We get more response to Twitter, we get more response to Instagram, and we get more response to just advertising through Google. I'm so surprised. Um, we, we only have a couple seconds left, but uh, LinkedIn is, you know, very much, a, you know, it's a, it's a business site. Uh, I would just think you would find more people looking for your services there. What, 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 do, what, do, what am I missing? Crowded. I, I can't answer that from my perspective. Oh, Go ahead, Lance. That's a good point. No, no, it's it's just crowded. It's, it's probably the most crowded medium for some reason. Everybody goes there. Interesting. Like the, ba the band's not a secret anymore. That's like Yogi Bear. Nobody goes there anymore because it's too crowded. <laughs> Guys, we got to stop. to the fork in the road. <laughs> Lance Tyson, thank you so much for joining us again today. Appreciate it. If you want to learn more about Lance, go to TysonGroup.com, or you can find him on Twitter, at Lance Tyson, and check out his book, Selling is an Away Game. Lou Mosca, thank you again, as always. Always, my friend. Thank you. If you want to keep up with Lou, go to Amserv, A-M-S-E-R-V.com. You can also follow him on Twitter, at Mosca Small Biz. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.